This podcast makes no representations, none of this constitutes advice, and your home or property may be repossessed if you do not keep up with repayments on your mortgage. Hello and welcome to another podcast by myself and the mortgage nerd, the man with the beard, the bearded broker, if you will, Lewis Shaw. Good afternoon, Lewis. <laughs> Hi, Joshua. How are you, mate? You okay? I'm, I'm all right. I've got a sore throat, which uh, I don't know if you can pick up on here or not. I'm, I'm battling through, I'm battling through, being as professional as possible. Um, so good to me, pal. Oh, bless you. Well, it's the first time anyone said that. Uh, Lewis, <laughs> let's get straight into this then. Um, today, we are talking about why interest rates don't matter and the machine you should always insure. I don't know where to start with that. There's two, both things have enticed my interest. Interest rates don't matter and the machine you should always insure. Let's start with that. I want to, uh, let's leave some suspense in there, shall we? So let's, we'll sure. talk about the machine later. Let's talk first about interest rates. Why don't interest rates matter? Right. Okay. So, of course, that title is partially misleading because, of course, I want people to click on the podcast and listen to it. But to a broad extent, uh, interest rates don't matter. because, And the reason they don't matter is because we can do nothing about them. So, of course, they matter in terms of um, they are directly linked to the, the amount that you're going to pay on your mortgage or on a loan or the, the rate that you're going to get as a saver at a bank. But we can't influence them. And so I think we shouldn't worry about them. Now, a lot of people, when it comes to getting a mortgage and buying a home or remortgaging, a lot of people are known in the industry as, well, not all, but some people are known as rate shoppers. And so kind of what's the rate, what rate have you got? What rate have you got? Um, And it's not a great way of thinking about your finances because often very, very, very low interest rates tend to have relatively high fees that come with them to, to effectively buy that product from the bank so or a building society. So generally, there's, there's a trade-off. If you want a super low interest rate, typically you end up paying what's called a booking fee or a product fee. They can be anything from 500 to 1,000 to 1,500 pounds. In some cases, a percentage of the value of the loan. Um, so you know, if it's a big loan, it could be in the order of kind of two, three, four, five thousand pounds. Um, now, <clears throat> when you take all those things into account, the lowest rate doesn't always work out to be the cheapest deal. Now, the reason that people have got so hung up on interest rates is when you see kind of TV shows and there's, you know, a TV journalist kind of harping on about, you know, rates of this and da-da-da-da-da. For example, I remember as a couple of weeks back, I saw a post by aforementioned TV journalist saying, mortgage rates are below 1% and why you should get one. Now, at the time there were four deals below 1% out of about 10,000-odd products. So, you know, we're talking about clickbait here. And the problem is, is that, of course, people with that, with large followings, get a lot of traction, and then you get call after call after call. I've seen that mortgage rates are below 1%. Right, okay, well, do you have 40% deposit? No. Okay, do you have good credit? Not so much. Right, well, you're not going to be eligible for that. What deposit do you have? 10%. Right, so it's going to be around a kind of 2 to 3% mark. Oh, but he said it's below 1%. Do you know what I mean? So there's that whole thing of of don't kind of get hung up on interest rates. Now, the second part of that is because um, interest rate tends to be, as a broker, it tends to be the last thing you look at. Because again, you you can't change it. We can't do anything about it. The bank sets the deal and, and that's that. Now, generally, when it comes to getting a mortgage, 
the way that I work, and I know a lot of the people that do what I do um, for themselves, this is the way that they work. They'll start, it's almost like a, a triangle. So you start off at the bottom with, okay, what's your situation? I'm a first time buyer. I've got X amount of deposit. This is my credit profile. This is my employment status. And we go, okay, taking all that into account, out of all the lenders we've got access to, these are the ones that you fit, right? Okay, so now out of those ones that you fit, how much do you need to borrow? I need to borrow X, right? Okay, so out of those lenders that you fit, there's six that are going to give you the size of loan that you require. Then after that, we go, how long do you want the mortgage for? Now, a lot of people kind of rock up and say 25 years. And that's just because it's been a hangover. It was a typically, you got a mortgage for 25 years, but you can have a mortgage from five to 40 years. Not all lenders do that, but you can have a mortgage from five up to 40 years. So then we go, right, rather than picking an arbitrary figure out of the air, 25 years, 30 years, we typically say, how much do you want to spend per month? Because, for example, let's say that someone's renting at £600 a month, we'd say, do you want your mortgage to, to be you know, approximately £600 a month because you're used to paying that? Yeah, okay, well, that works out to be, I don't know, a 32-year mortgage. Okay, so of the lenders that you now match, they're going to give you the loan, What? which one or which ones are going to give you the 32 years? Okay, well, out of those 10, there's now four. Okay, and out of those four, what kind of deal do you want? Um, well, I'm, I want stability and security, so I'm, I'm, I'm after a five. I'm after a fixed rate. Okay, so these are now the fixed rates from those lenders, and so we're constantly narrowing down and narrowing down until the point we're going right. So we want a 32-year term for this amount of money on a five-year fixed rate, and of the, and, and out of those now, this one, out of that smaller category, that's now the best deal. And whatever that rate is, is the rate. And it's no good kind of getting hung up on it because we've got all these other things that, and all these other factors that feed into it. So, and, in, and in that respect, that's why I don't think, and a lot of people I work with don't think, they just don't matter. Interest rates don't matter. I've got a note down here to talk about stats about first-time buyers. On that subject, I just want to ask uh, a question that has been plaguing me for a while. I keep seeing um, stuff online and, and in the papers and on telly about it being uh, a good time for people buying a property because property prices are low or vice versa the question i've got is is in realistic terms what difference does it make for somebody because i would i don't know the stats but i would say the majority of people buying a house are also selling a property to fund the the, the purchase obviously this doesn't apply to first-time buyers which is why i mentioned it because i saw first-time buyers and i thought about it it doesn't apply to them necessarily but if you if you were taking the next step on the property ladder is there ever such such a thing as a good time to buy and sell? Because if it's if it's a good time to buy and it's a bad time to sell, but you're doing both, how how does that work on balance? Sure. So this is often a, a thing that that, that, does, that does crop up. Um, in reality, the best time to sell your home to move up um, is when it's right for you, because it's it's a bit silly to try and predict the market because most people can't. Um, some people have the habit of when it comes to you know selling and buying a home they they, they don't do it all that often but they kind of get in their head uh, they become they think they're the wolf of Wall Street um, <laughs> which is I suppose it's a little bit rude on my part but you know it, it is how people is you've got to remember um, that when it comes to kind of selling and buying a home most people will will kind of have typically the stat shows about four to five houses throughout their life so they'll perhaps move three or four times. And of course, that's over the period of perhaps 40, 50 odd years and things change. Now, 
when it comes to experience, if you imagine I've arranged in the region, I don't know, about a thousand transactions or so, so far. So, and that's in six odd years. So if you imagine the experience I have in comparison to kind of just a person that's walking down the street, that's done it a couple of times, you can imagine that um, there's a whole host of experience that I have and knowledge that I have that they wouldn't have. And that's not their fault because they don't do my job um, in the same way that I wouldn't have the knowledge that they have of their job. So, but people do come sometimes get misled in terms of well, what's the market doing, what's the market doing. But actually, it's it's pointless trying to predict it. So you're right. Often, often when it's a good time to buy, it's a bad time to sell, and vice versa. So they are they are um, linked in that way that that, that, that they that they then do tend to be opposites. Now at the moment, it's a great time to sell because there's not many houses about at the moment on the market. There's a shortage of stock, which is meant that prices have been pushed up coupled with the stamp duty holiday that we've still got going on until the 30th of September if you're buying up to £250,000. That has meant that the property market has become red hot but because there's a such overwhelming demand and not enough supply that's meant that people selling the homes are getting great prices for them and prices have risen. I think it's something like 10% year on year. It's been absolutely mental how fast and far house prices have gone in the last 12 months given that we've just had one of the worst economic hits uh, since for well in about 300 years when it comes to GDP dropping because of COVID and shutting down the economy. So it is a bit odd. Um, now, that said, hopefully it will continue as it is. But as prices rise, of course, that pushes it out of the, uh, it makes it more, not pushes it out of the boundary of first-time buyers, but makes it harder for first-time buyers to get on the ladder because that first property then becomes more expensive. So at the moment, it's great if you're selling but it's not great if you're buying uh, because house prices have risen. That said, there's still a saving to be had if uh, if you're buying uh, up to two hundred and well up to four hundred five hundred thousand pounds because you're still getting two and a half thousand pounds off um, of your stamp duty cost as long as you legally complete by the thirtieth of September, twenty twenty one. Well, that's something you've touched on it there, something I was going to pick up on. I was going to say in layman's terms then, basically, when we talk about the market being good for buying or selling, it really only affects um, in in large terms. And this obviously isn't, a, you know, this doesn't apply to everybody. I appreciate there's, there's always going to be different circumstances. But by and large, it's really only going to affect opposite ends of the spectrum. So first-time buyers will wait for the market or, or will hope the market is suitable for buying. But then at the opposite end of the spectrum, somebody who is getting towards the end of their time um, that may well be selling a property and renting um, or moving into sheltered accommodation or something or, or nursing homes and care homes or whatever it may be, retirement homes, that sort of thing, um, for their final years would, would want it to be a seller's market. But anyone in between that's already in a property moving into another one, it doesn't really make much difference. No, that's right, because um, <clears throat> you only... So you a house... So here's the thing. A house is only ever worth another house. So forget about the kind of the pounds and the pence. A house is worth a house. Um, and we get hung up on house prices. Now, we often think that rising house prices is a good thing, but that's because we kind of forget the logic behind this. But, you know, if house prices rise, yes, your home's worth more, but then you've got to spend more and pay more to buy a bigger home. So you never actually materialize that wealth, that kind of equity that's tied up in your property never gets realized until it's sold. Now, of course, you always need somewhere to live. Um, and therefore, rising house prices don't really um, make anyone wealthier apart from people like me, solicitors, estate agents, 
and, and banks. In reality, they're, they're the people that do well out of this, you know. So long way to continue for me. I'm just being honest. Um, but in actual fact, unless you've bought a home, for example, let's say you had a home uh, in London and you bought it 20 years ago. I actually, when I lived in London, I knew a couple, uh, a, a gay couple. Uh, they were fantastic. And they bought their first home, I think it was about kind of 1980 in Tooting Beck. And they bought it for a really, really low price. Anyway, they had it valued because they were wanting to move out of London. They were getting towards the kind of retirement age. And it's gone up by something like £1.1 million over the course of their ownership of it. They'd done nothing for that money um, other than just <clears throat> managed to get on the housing ladder in a part of London at the, at the time that wasn't particularly nice and they could afford it, which has now become uber trendy. Um, they're going to be selling, well, they, they sold that house, uh, moved out um, to the kind of Kent countryside, uh, but sold it for like 1.3 million. And it was like a three bed um, kind of typical London terrace townhouse. It was, it was lovely. Don't get me wrong. It, it was lovely. Um, <clears throat> so they made a profit because they could go and buy something for, £400,000, and they've got absolutely stacks and stacks of money to live on for the retirement. That, however, is not the norm for most people. Absolutely. Uh, while we're on the subject, then, let's let's talk a bit more about first-time buyers, and, and let's look at some stats around that. Sure. So so I've kind of done a bit of digging. There's, uh, there's kind of various polls and, and, uh, and poll companies that kind of do this stuff. And I think it's important that first-time buyers know that the feelings that they have and the concerns and worries that they have, all people have them. So um, it, there was a, a survey by money.co.uk. Um, uh, 31% of first-time buyers uh, feared uh, that their home could drop in value and, and a negative equity. 26% were worried about saving enough deposit versus um, uh, house price increases. 22% were worried about uh, affordability of the mortgage long-term. 13% are concerned about COVID-19 influences spiking prices, which has happened. And just over 10% are worried about breaking up with their significant other partner um, after buying together. So there are those concerns. I mean, this is a this is a this is a weird stat. I didn't even realize this was a thing, but according to NerdWallet in 2021, 74%, almost three quarters of first-time buyers have admitted they prioritize a financially stable partner over love. I don't know how. I mean, that's a that's a, a big thing. Again, three quarters, seventy six percent of first time buyers in the UK are couple are couple households. I wonder whether um, they admit that to their partner because, by law of averages, their partner agrees with them anyway. If, if three out of four people think that, um, but well, I'm not exactly, sure I yeah. dare turn around to my partner. It's not true anyway. Turn around and say, I, I don't really love you, but you are financially stable. I mean, I can just exactly. imagine what a lovely, warm relationship that would be sat in their house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I exactly. love your financial stability. Oh, I love yeah. yours too. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting hot under the collar about how well you manage your credit. Um, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. But anyway, uh, so again, Atom Bank did a uh, study in 2020. Atom Bank is a, is a kind of challenger bank. Um, they go under the brand of digital mortgages. Uh, 64% of the nation's first-time buyers admitted to feeling anxiety when tackling the challenge of the mortgage process. Almost four out of five first-time buyers claim home ownership improves mental health, and that's a 2021 study by uh, Co-Ownership. Um, boosted, uh, home ownership boosted their confidence and removed the worry of fluctuating rent. And also, uh, an interesting one, um, the average age of a first-time buyer in the UK um, 
is 34 years old. Uh, that's by finder.com in August 2020. That's up six years since 2007. So in 2007, the average age was 28 and it's now 34. So there's some some uh, stats for you. Interesting stuff. I was, I was fortunate. I bought my first house when I was 25. I'm still in it. Um, and it was cheaper. The repayment is cheaper than the rent was, um, which frustrates the life out of me when I speak to a lot of friends I went to school with at my age that are still renting because they, you know, they, they try and get a mortgage and they say, we, we don't trust you can pay this back. And they quite reasonably argue, well, what I'm paying per month now is more than the mortgage repayment would be. So if I can afford to pay what I'm paying now, why can't I afford to pay less per month? And it is, I, I sympathise with them entirely. I really do. I mean, to be fair, I, I have seen that kind of meme going around saying where, you know, where the banks say, give us a £25,000 deposit to prove that you can pay this mortgage. And, and, the, and the meme goes, well, I'm paying £1,000 a month in rent. So actually, that's quite a good topic. I can, I can dive into that and give you the actual answer as to why that is the case. Let's let's save that. Let's do that next okay. week because we've got lots okay. to get through today. Okay. Uh, but there, a nice little teaser for anybody that's uh, in that situation. We, we'll definitely delve into that next week. Um, Lewis, one more thing I want to ask, and then we're going to summarise with a few top tips before we, we finish for today. Um, for first-time buyers, we've just discussed the stats there about first-time buyers, people who won't have made an offer on a house before. What's the way to do that? Because it can be more important than you might think. Yeah, that's right. Often... <clears throat> to be fair, this is a general psychological principle. And even when we know about it, we can't avoid being influenced by it. So I'll, in fact, I'll try it with you, Josh. <clears throat> um, would you rather buy a yogurt that's 75% fat-free or a yogurt that's 25% fat? Uh, they're both exactly the same. Yeah, but which one would you actually, if, you, if you're in a shop, which one would you pick up? <laughs> Uh, neither, because I don't really eat yogurt. But okay, fair <laughs> but for, the, for the purpose of this, uh, I suppose I would go with the one that, that says seventy five percent less fat, because exactly. it's, it sounds more appealing. I, I can see where you're going with this, but yeah, I, yeah, okay. yeah. And, and and again, again, it, it is about because actually it is a psychological principle that we, we can't. We even as I say, even when we know about it, we can't nevertheless be influenced by it. So, for example, um, if it come, if it comes to buying condoms. Do you buy the condom that says it's 99% successful or would you buy the one that says if you buy this, there is a 1% chance you could get someone pregnant? Well, I've, you're talking to a man who's got two children and one on the way. Um, so it's not a headache I've had. But <laughs> again, I, I assume it would be the one that is 99% successful. Exactly. And so in, when it comes to making mortgage offer, it's exactly the same. So it's about making sure that it's positioned in the appropriate way um, because actually, it's not always about who's gone in with the highest price. Of course, the price will matter. The price will always matter. But it doesn't matter as much as you think. Because, for example, first-time buyers are generally always in the position. They're chain-free. Um, they've got their deposit together. Ideally, you know, if they've been to see me, which is the, the right way to go about it, if they've been to see me, then they've got their agreement in principle. Um, <clears throat> and so that's a very attractive prospect for someone that wants to sell because because you know that they're prepared they're organized they're ready to go so when that offer comes in even if it is not the highest it might be the lowest but actually being in the best position and making sure that that gets across can have more of an impact than people might actually realize it's, it's like that whole old, old uh, thing isn't it so um there was a young monk uh, in a monastery and he spoke to the abbot and he said to the abbot um when we're praying, is it okay if I smoke? And the other said, absolutely not. That would be sacrilege. Don't, don't be, you know, that'd be, it's terrible. 
and the young monk went on a psychology course and a couple of days back, a couple of days later, he comes back and he says to the abbot, is it okay to smoke while I'm praying? Of course, my child. You know, so it's about how it's phrased. It's about how things are put across that can make all the difference. Interesting. Um, what about for somebody who, let's say they've paid off their property completely. So obviously, again, by and large, lots of people moving up the property ladder will still have an existing mortgage on the property, but they'll be looking to sell and upsize into a bigger property. Would the same sort of benefit apply? You talk there about first-time buyers being in that privileged position. Would the, the same thing apply if you were to say, well, obviously I've got a chain because I've got my property to sell, but there's no mortgage on it. It's, it's fully paid off. Is that a benefit? Um, when it comes to selling, you're still in the chain. So it's it's easier because there's not a mortgage to remove by way of legal charge. So it is easier, but no, it doesn't really have that much of a benefit, if I'm honest. Or at least not, I, I don't think it does. Some people may disagree. Fair enough. Uh, Lewis, one final thing then before we call it a day. Uh, what would be your top tips for first-time buyers to get properly prepared? Um, <clears throat> so the first thing, Absolutely, the first thing that you should always do is uh, sit down together. If you're buying on your own, or, or if, you know whether you're a couple, sit down and have a look at your own finances. Um, how much can I afford? So you may know how much you can afford because perhaps you're renting and you're thinking, well, actually, I want to keep it around the same level as my rent or a little bit cheaper. But if you're, for example, living with parents or family or friends, to sit down and go, right, how much can I feasibly afford to pay per month? So that's the first step. The second step would be then to jump onto Google and search for something along the lines of mortgage broker near me, best independent broker near me, where can I get mortgage advice? Have a look online um, <clears throat> and have a look at a few websites um, and check out their reviews. Are they independent? Do they charge a fee? If, they, if so, what is that fee? Um, <clears throat> have a read of their reviews. Are they good quality? Do you like the look of them? Do you like do you like do you like the the sound of, of what they're doing? Is there any resources that you can use? Um, and then if you're comfortable with that, perhaps give them a call and make an appointment. So what happens is is for example, a lot of first time buyers uh, in and around the Mansfield and Nashfield area, um, generally they'll come and see me in the office. They'll bring all the documentation, passport, uh, driving license, payslips, bank statements. I'll get a credit file, etc. We'll sit down. We'll go through that in detail. I'll talk to them and establish what kind of things are important to them. You know, are you looking for stability of a fixed rate or are you happy to have more risk and go with something that's variable if it might be a bit cheaper? How do you feel about fees? So we talk all about the kind of what type of mortgage you want. Then we look at the affordability. How much can you borrow? How much do you want to borrow? And how much is that likely to cost and over what period of time? To give them an, an idea of, 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 you know, what house they can then buy. And so by the time they've left my office, they will know what they can buy up to what that's likely to cost them and over what period of time. So they know in their own mind, right, I've set my uh, boundary in terms of I'm looking at houses up to X um, and not above. And, and this is the kind of you know price range that you need to be sticking to. And <clears throat> that's a really, really good place to be because I've seen a number of times where um, first-time buyers, well, not just first-time buyers, to be fair, anyone, they, they start house hunting, find something they love and then it turns out that they can't get the mortgage on it they get you know terribly disappointed um when it comes to our you know 
oh, I really wanted the house, but yeah, but you never could, you, you could have never got that house anyway. You've not missed out on something because you could never have had it. Um, but nevertheless, you still get that disappointment. So it's about being prepared. I can't stress how much being prepared um, matters. Not to mention that it makes uh, your life so much easier when you actually find that property because you've already got the agreement in principle. We already know that it fits. We've already got the majority of the documentation that's required. So when you're ready to go and you're ready to push that button, it's a relatively straightforward and stress-free and efficient process for people. Now, <clears throat> of course, things can always go wrong in the process. They do. Surveyors can say that it's not worth what it wants to be. I mean, the stats are something like something like uh, one in three property transactions falls through. So that's where someone's made an offer. They've, they've started the process um, and it falls through. One in three. So that's, a, that's quite a, a significant amount of properties that fall through. You know, And of course, <clears throat> people often assume it won't happen to them, to them. But of course, it does. We've got the stats. I think it, during COVID, it was about forty percent. So, four out of ten properties where uh, someone had said, "Yep, I'll accept that price," and "Yes, I'll buy to that price," four out of ten of those fell through and didn't complete. And that's an awful lot of disappointment, <laughs> you know? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge amount. Um, when when you when you think about it, it's nearly half in essence, isn't it? Um, and you talked earlier about people tend to own three or four properties in their life, which means that statistically, uh, it's going to happen to you at some point. Um, yes. Lewis, thank you very, very much for your time. We'll be back next week. I think we've already we've already hinted at it. We're going to talk a little bit about um, getting a mortgage when you're paying rent and, and being able to prove to a bank you can afford to pay something when in your head you're paying more than the mortgage repayments will be worth. Um, but all the little traps and issues that can come with that. Lewis, uh, once again, oh, thank you. Very, sorry, Josh. Oh, he's, got, he's got something else. Go on, Lewis. Um, we didn't do the machine. We didn't do the machine, the most important bit. Yeah, I'm, yeah, because I want to know what this is. Um, right, so, as, <laughs> okay, in case we've forgotten, which I did, um, why interest rates don't matter, which we've covered, and the machine you should always insure. Lewis, what is the machine you should always insure? Is it the microwave? No, Humble it's you. Dryer. It's you. Me. It's you. So <clears throat> we've got this <clears throat> weird habit in the UK. And it, and it is a, definitely a cultural thing because it, in, it's different in Europe. They take it; they, they, they're much more conscientious regarding this. But so in the UK, it, it's, it's a, it is a perennial issue. So we insure cars, we insure TVs, we insure fridge freezers, um, we insure phones and laptops, we insure smartwatches, we insure bikes, um, we insure our home. Um, <clears throat> and what we tend—I mean, to be fair—we insure our health by paying national insurance. Um, we tend to not insure our ability to make an income. So our income, we need so far. There's not enough people that have, you know, that well in my eyes that have their income protected. So the machine that you should always insure is this. Um, imagine that you've bought a home. You're a first time buyer or a next time buyer. Um, you've bought a home, and you walk in, and there's a cupboard. You open the cupboard, and you didn't know it's a bit of a secret cupboard. You open it, and there's a machine in the corner. And it says press here and you find the instruction manual and you can press the button on the machine in the secret cupboard once a month. And once a month, it spits out, for example, 2000 pounds or a thousand pounds. If I came along to you and said, would you like to ensure that machine will never, ever break down? No matter what happens, that will continue, continue to spit out at you 2000 pounds a month, come rain, hell or high water. Most people, when you put that to them, say, well, yeah, definitely. I'd definitely insure that machine. Of course I would if it's giving me £2,000 a month. Well, I mean, actually... Can I have two of these machines or three? <laughs> yeah. 
So actually, that machine is you. It's your ability. The most important thing to ensure is your ability to earn an income. Now, there is a specific plan out there called Income Protection Benefit, or IPB, uh, or IP sometimes. Um, and it's the one thing that most people don't have that everyone should have. So when it comes to insurance, most people automatically think of life insurance, which is a fantastic market employee because actually it's death insurance. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so there's life insurance, which pays out typically a lump sum in the event that you've passed away. Um, so that's generally quite cheap because most people don't just, whilst we're all going to die, most people just don't drop dead in the street randomly. It does happen, sadly, but not that often. The next one you have uh, tends to be what's called critical illness cover, which is where, for example, heart attacks, strokes, and the dreaded cancer, um, where it will pay out again, potentially a lump sum. It can be a monthly benefit, but typically a, month, uh, a lump sum in the event that you're diagnosed with a critical illness. And it's not just heart attack, stroke, and cancer, but although they are the most three claimed for. Um, and, and here's an awful st statistic, a really awful one. So cancer is the most claimed for um, critical illness on, on critical illness cover plans. Um, I think the fourth or fifth most claimed for critical illness is where a child's been, been been diagnosed as critical. That's horrendous. That's the fifth, I think, fifth most claimed for thing on a, on a kick policy, which is really awfully sad. Anyway, Absolutely. and then after that, you've got IP. Most people who go, I'll have life insurance in case I die. If I can afford critical illness cover, I'll get it in case I get cancer. Income protection, no, I don't want that because I get sick pay. Well, actually, most people don't get great sick pay or they've kind of got this mistaken notion that the state will support them. Now, sick pay isn't all that much. It's less than £100 per week. I think the stats on this are something like most people, it's kind of um, how far to the breadline. Legal in general did a study on this. And it's a, it's a short period of time when you've kind of exhausted your savings, your overdraft, your credit cards, et cetera. It's only a couple of months you can manage without having any income. Now, often when we talk to people about this, it's difficult to be fair because insurance is actually far more complex than mortgages, but people don't, obviously don't know that, but it is. Um, because a mortgage is just a loan to buy a house. Of course, you've got different lenders with different criteria, but fundamentally, it's just a loan to buy a house. Where with insurance, insurance companies tend to have <clears throat> all manner of different kind of criteria. So, for example, I'll, I'll just give you this as an example. There is an insurer on a critical illness basis where <clears throat> um, the definition of a heart attack uh, used to be, basically, someone would have to have their hands in your chest massaging your heart. That was their definition of a heart attack. There's... So if you can imagine, we've got two insurance plans. Which one do you choose? There's that one at £20 or there's this one at £35. Now, of course, <clears throat> because I do this as a, as a job and, and I'm, I'm a qualified professional in this arena, I know what plans are good for what. So, you know, if you've kind of got a higher BMI, that insurer is not going to be particularly great with you, but this one will be. I've had, um, <clears throat> uh, I don't know, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had uh, maybe cancer 10 years ago. Okay, well, that insurance definitely out, but this one will be in. <clears throat> now, for example, with the heart attack scenario, it used to be the case that, that I mean, this is, this is now not so much the case, but it was the case back in the day. When I say back in the day, I mean kind of three or four, five years ago. There was one insurer where if you'd had a heart attack, it was basically you've, you've, you've got to be on the surgeon's slab and someone's kind of massaging your heart. They go, yeah, that constitutes a heart attack. We'll pay out. There's another insurer and I'm not going to name them, of course, whereby, for example, if you had a heart attack 
Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you have a heart attack, there's a specific kind of um, enzyme or, or protein that's produced and that, that can be picked up in your blood. So you could have had a heart attack, never even known you'd had one because it was so small and so slight. But nevertheless, if that protein's in your blood, it means you've had a, a cardiac event. Now, that particular insurer, their policy, their definition was if we find that in your blood and a doctor says you've had a heart attack, you've had a heart attack, we'll pay out. You can see there by actually which is the better value plan. Now, in terms of protecting your income, so we talk about the kind of life insurance, the critical illness cover, but actually protecting your income is absolutely vital because it's what allows you to do everything else. Now, we often don't think about it, and that's partly the reason is that if someone sat in my office and we're going, this is life insurance, this is a mortgage, this is critical illness cover, you can see people glazing over because there's a lot of information that they've never had to take in before. And I understand that. Um, and often income protection is the kind of the poor relation that actually gets forgotten about. But it's realistically, it's the most likely, it's the most claimed on plan in reality. It's the one that you're most likely to claim on. Because as I say, most people don't just randomly drop down dead in the in the street if you were critically ill income protection would pay out so it's a ba- it's basically it's personal sick pay and you can have it for example for your entire salary and you could set it so that it pays out let's say i'm off work for three months uh, and then it starts to pay out and it will pay out you know depending on the plan up until your retirement age so if you can't work again you're going to get your salary month in month out paid from that insurer and therefore you're never at risk of kind of losing your home and all the rest of it now, of course, not everyone can afford it, which is understandable because it's not that cheap. But nevertheless, it is something that people should consider because, as I say, when we when we take it back to the machine, if that machine was in people's houses and I said, I can insure that for you for £30 a month, who wouldn't buy that insurance? Absolutely. And I think, to be honest, there's so much there. You just you mentioned there that people can gloss over and there's so much to talk about when it comes to, to insurance. I think that's a podcast in itself, talking about different types of insurance and, and how that works. Um, but we shall leave it there for now. Lewis, um, for, <laughs> I'll try again. I think we've covered everything this time. Thank you very, very much, as always. And uh, I will see you again next week. Lovely. Thanks very much, mate. Take it easy. And you. Cheers. Bye-bye.